Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. The CBD market is exploding with the ingredient popping up in everything from bars to beverages to confections and everything in between, driving up sales to more than $200 million in 2018 by conservative estimates and an expected $3.8 billion by 2025, according to market research. And yet, FDA has said over and over that because CBD first appeared in an investigational new drug before it was recognized as an ingredient in the food supply, it is not a legal food and dietary supplement ingredient. At least for now. The agency has cracked open a door to the possibility that it maybe might someday allow CBD and other cannabis-derived ingredients in conventional foods and dietary supplements, depending on analysis of the safety data and if it can scaffold a regulatory framework that allows for appropriate oversight. The snag, however, was revealed May 31st when FDA hosted an open hearing on CBD and cannabis-derived compounds and that found the agency doesn't currently have sufficient science to prove safety or efficacy to move forward. It also doesn't have a clear idea about what an appropriate regulatory framework might be. As such, it's asking industry for help by submitting data and comments to the agency through July 2nd. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, we take a closer look at some of the comments and data, or lack thereof, presented at the FDA public hearing. And we also hear from industry experts about what this might mean for CBD stakeholders in the future. When the 2018 Farm Bill legalized growing hemp with THC levels of 0.3% or lower, Greg Kaufman, who's a partner with the law firm Eversheds Sutherland and who attended the FDA hearing on May 31st, noted that many stakeholders celebrated as if the legislation unlocked a treasure chest. I was driving here this morning from from downtown D.C. and in Chevy Chase, Maryland on Connecticut Avenue, flapping in the wind is a banner saying CBD sold here. And I thought, how fitting that I'm driving to, to, a, to a, a cannabis uh, hearing at the FDA. And then right when I pulled in, there was a story on NPR about this, this hearing. So um, there's so much interest in it. There's, the market is growing. You know, you see the projections. It's a, it's a $5 billion market. It's a $10 billion market. It's going to be a $50 billion market. So when you see projections like that, there's a lot of interest in it. Um, and there's a lot of people who want to get involved in it. There's great interest in hemp growing. Yes, fiber as a food additive, but the main interest is extracting the oils from it because that's where all of the compounds are, the cannabinoids, the terpenes, the flavonoids. And that's what people are really interested in. That's what's driving the market. Hemp is priced off of a percentage of CBD. Or, and, and CBN and CBG. Um, so that's really what's driving the market. You heard it today, and I've heard the same thing. An acre of hemp can be worth as much as $60,000. I mean, an acre of wheat is worth about $600. Um, so that's, that's really, you know, for a farmer, that's an amazing opportunity. But as Kaufman noted, the farm bill wasn't really the panacea for all of the hemp industry's challenges. 
Rather, he explained several hurdles continue to block the path forward for using CBD and other cannabis-derived ingredients, the most pressing of which is FDA's perspective on its dearth of science-based research into the safety and efficacy of CBD and other cannabis-derived ingredients. We've heard the term today a lot, the wild, wild west, and it really is the wild, wild west, and this complete patchwork of regulations, most of which don't really um, address the concerns that we're here today addressing, you know, the FDA's concerns about dosaging and labeling and um, you know, how it interacts with other drugs, all of those things are, are not really present in the marketplace right now. There's still restrictions at the federal level on what kind of research can be done, and that's a problem. You have a lot of private uh, actors who are doing very important research. Um, I, I was. I have a client who's really. It's a science company. Um, they're scientists, uh, and they say we think there are about 600 compounds in a cannabis plant. We've identified about 130 of them. We know five of them really well and how they work. That says there's a lot more to be done um, on the research side. Research, I think, will inform the path forward. But that pathway likely will not be as straight or easy to follow as some in the industry might hope. Based on science presented at the meeting by Elise Wirtz, a professor of psychiatry and behavior sciences at John Hopkins, the existing research paints a much more complex picture of CBD than many stakeholders project. The big question is, can it Yes, there's a lot of data in the scientific literature showing that 30% of regular users will from the habit cannabis use disorder, and about 300,000 treatment emissions occur each year. And why do people seek treatment? They're having uh, problems with functioning, they're having an inability to stop using, they're smoking when they intend, they have memory deficits, they go through the phone, and other health concerns. Few patients that seek treatment actually are able to abstain, only about 20%. And treatment options are not that good. So what does withdrawal look like? Well, typically you see increase in anxiety, irritability, craving, and restlessness. It decreases in food intake and sleep quality. This withdrawal emerges after 24 hours when you stop, and it continues for weeks. And the really important point is that women seem to be more vulnerable. They have an accelerated trajectory uh, for developing problems, and they also experience more withdrawal and have worse outcomes, even when they're using the same amount as men. Now, to switch sides, Margaret Haney has done a number of laboratory studies looking at benefits. So she did some studies in HIV-positive patients and showed that um, these individuals who often have problems eating and lose weight, uh, when you give cannabis, it actually improves those symptoms. So there's reduced GI distress and an increased caloric intake. She also did a laboratory pain model where smoked cannabis and oral THC dose dependent and reduced pain sensitivity, and then loaded opioids um, that don't produce any amount of analgesia or pain relief, when combined with small amounts of cannabis actually do have a benefit. However, again, women appear less sensitive to these effects, and so it may not be beneficial for women. There's also the National Academy of Sciences Review that covered a lot of uh, the different literature that's out there to look for medical benefit, or only three of the uh, things that were examined actually proved to be beneficial. So more research is needed. We need to increase um, research because legalization and acceptance is increasing use. So there's an escalation that's well documented in adolescents and adults, including pregnant women, Rising. You need to understand how this is affecting health. There's also no regulatory pathway for all these constituents, and we really don't know anything about them. The idea that they've been pretty sick is ridiculous. It hasn't been done. 
And then also we need to evaluate the health claims. But we can't do that if the research can't access these compounds. And then I give you a list of things that uh, you need to research and that you know, you can look at that online. But we need to understand the risks and benefits. There's clearly both. And then there's some recommendations here for the uh, regulatory outcomes about streamlining the process, particularly for interactions between the DEA and the FDA, because that's very long. And INDs. We need to accelerate the INDs so we can actually study these things in clinical trials. In response to Ward's presentation, as well as those as many others, FDA panelists repeatedly asked presenters to submit their research to the docket for closer inspection. Some happily agreed and added color to their comments, while others squirmed, clearly unable to meet the agency's basic request. FDA panelists also asked about basic definition for key terms frequently used by the industry, such as what's broad spectrum, what's full spectrum, what are isolates, this request really underscores the depth of the agency's need for more information about every aspect of the task ahead of them. While Kaufman said he understood the panelists' requests for more data, he was disappointed that their questions were not more pointed, a shortcoming that he suggests may signal the agency is punting a bit on the issue. I think they are punting. I, th- I, don't, I don't think they know what to do. Um, and I don't think they've ever really been in a situation like this before. I mean, has there ever been a, a product that has been a Schedule One drug that has been descheduled that is now widely available in the marketplace without any real regulation? Has the FDA ever encountered that before? I doubt it. Even if FDA greenlights CBD for use in conventional food and supplements, Kaufman explains that stakeholders would still need to overcome significant hurdles, including distrust by banks, insurance companies, and other professional entities that currently are unwilling to serve hemp-derived CBD businesses. At the hearing, Andrew Klein of the National Cannabis Industry Association explained the potential economic impact of the cannabis sector, as well as the negative impact on stakeholders of financial institutions unwilling to work with them. Banks and payment processors don't currently understand the regulatory landscape, and as a result, many CBD companies are at risk of losing essential financial services. Because of this, it's critical for FDA to advance regulations in an expedited fashion. The second point I'd like to drive home is, is the significance of the economic impact of this nascent industry. Current research indicates that at present, about 7% of all adult Americans, or 22 million people, use CBD as a supplement. The current market size is estimated at upwards of $2 billion. This current economic activity supports nearly 12,000 directly <coughs> jobs. A five-year projection shows a multiple of eight. We need to get this right, but we need to get this done quickly as possible before we lose market share to Canada, China, and other international players. Kaufman added that banks' refusal to work with entrepreneurs in the space adds a degree of danger that just doesn't need to be there. My brother-in-law's is... Uh, uh, started a dispensary, a vertically integrated dispensary in Oregon, recently sold it and now works for the company that that bought his and other uh, dispensaries. And cash was his biggest problem. Multiple safes, cash pickups, you know, paying people in cash. Um, that's it's just frankly adds a level level of danger to the industry that does not need to be there. Hopefully, um, the uh, SAFE Act will pass Congress. It has a chance, I think. There was some, I read an article last week that 
the Republican on the Senate side, I think it will pass the House without any problems. Republican, key Republican on the Senate side, didn't say no. And that was seen as a, you know, he's coming around, right? Um, so uh, that would just, I think that's just, it would just be a good idea to allow the banks to start banking that money, transacting that money through the SWIFT system, things like that. So um, it's sort of a needless uh, point of danger um, and and opportun- criminal opportunity uh, with all that cash moving around that just doesn't need to be there. While many of these problems exist at the national level, Bill Acevedo, who's a partner with the law firm Wendell Rosen, points out there's also another layer of challenges at the state level where varying laws are complicating interstate business. You know, for example, the um, uh, the, the U.S. Postal Service, they, I, I know they have been concerned about mailing um, you know, what are the rules for mailing hemp-derived CBD? Uh, so, okay, it's, so you can, you can have hemp-derived uh, CBD um, under the, the farm bill, but what does that really mean in terms of moving, you know, interstate? So um, I think there's some, some real concerns there. The challenge, though, is remember, um, you, you have a lot of states out there that have taken different um, approaches to things. Um, and um, I know Colorado, for example, they, they require manufacturers that add CBD food to um, essentially analyze those products to ensure um, that the THC uh, levels are 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 below the 0.3% cutoff. Um, and then um, Oregon, for example, they uh, the, the growers, they have to um, test the initial CBD extract of implants. Um, and it's not just for um, CBD and THC levels, but also for contaminants, such as pesticides and residue um, of um, uh, the chemical solvents that, that are sometimes used to extract CBD from hemp. California, um, anybody who's had the uh, pleasure and pain of uh, doing business in California knows that Prop 65 always looms large. Um, and so, you know, how are you, how are you as a, a manufacturer going to really comply with that statute? You have to test your product. You have to know whether any of the, you know, 800 plus um, substances that California has determined are known to uh, cause cancer or potential reproductive uh, birth defects. Those aren't in, you know, concentrations in, in your product above the threshold amounts. So, so you have a lot of a lot of um, caps to hurt here. Um, and I think it's it's that's going to add a little bit to some of the complexity that the FDA is dealing with, um, because they're going to be looking at their own rules, right? But they're not going to be making rules in a vacuum. Um, and and the reason why I don't think they're going to be making rules in a vacuum is um, because they weren't the lead on this. 
the states have have essentially really been point on um, on on as I said, medical cannabis and recreational cannabis, and now you know um, CBD products. And and I think that the FDA, because they're playing catch up, and because they they want to be thoughtful, and because the FDA ultimately um, is going to be looking at the nation as a whole, as opposed to just a particular state, they they really have to take the time to get it right, um, and, and to try to make rules that are sensible. Um, uh, for industry, but primarily really address the FDA's um, singular role of ensuring the health and safety of, of consumers. With so much to wade through, both Acevedo and Kaufman said it's unlikely that FDA will heed industry's call to act on the issue within the year. Rather, they predict there is a long road ahead that could stretch upwards of five years, depending on the approach that FDA takes. On that note, they both encourage stakeholders to share with FDA their concerns ahead of the July 2nd deadline for submitting comments to the docket. And with that, we have reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment and to ensure that you remember... I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until then, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.